This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week on SITREP, we hear from the American general commanding operations in Helmand province. Where the majority of the UK forces are is the central Helmand River Valley. Those are the six key districts that control the entire problem. We ask how many of the Defence Review rumours are fact and who's behind the fiction. And we look back at this week's Battle of Britain commemorations. MPs are debating whether British forces should remain in Afghanistan. There's no suggestion tonight's vote will call for an immediate pullout, but it's the first ever Commons vote on the conflict. Condemnation of a pastor's plan to burn the Koran has spread around the world. Terry Jones says he'll go ahead with plans to burn the Islamic holy book on the anniversary of 9-11. Despite criticism from President Obama, the Pope and the governments of India, Pakistan, Indonesia and Malaysia. The defence firm BAE Systems has announced plans to axe almost a 1,000 jobs. The losses will mainly be from its military division, especially the BAE plants in Lancashire and East Yorkshire. Officials have warned the job cuts could be the tip of an iceberg. The state-of-the-art warship HMS Daring has been damaged in a collision with a tugboat just weeks after she was declared ready for action. There is a 30-foot-long dent down the side. The tugboat is said to have lost control after an engine failure. An investigation is underway to discover the full extent of the damage. And that's the latest. I'm Adam Gilchrist. This weekend is the ninth anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. The attacks were to trigger a chain of events which, nine years on, sees British troops still in Afghanistan. Since June, British troops serving as part of the International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF, in Helmand, have come under Regional Command Southwest, led by US Marine Corps Major General Richard Mills. I spoke to him earlier and asked him about the quality of the newly trained Afghan soldiers and policemen who are key to the exit strategy. Well, in all honesty, like any military or any security organization, uh, quality uh, differs depending on uh, some of the individuals and, and some of the units. But I think overall, uh, the, qu- uh, the quality is, is very good. I think in the, uh, in the Army, we've seen a, uh, a good uh, core staff uh, come up, a uh, headquarters element that's able to command and control subordinate units uh, effectively. I think we've seen uh, smaller tactical units at the, uh, at the brigade and battalion level uh, who are that are capable of deploying to the field? They're able to uh, fight the enemy when they find them, and able to uh, resupply themselves and, and take care of themselves in the field, and and do very well when they meet opposition. Within the police, the police force are local police. They, it differs from town to town, like uh, like any place in the United States or in uh, in the UK. Uh, some of the towns have uh, some very effective uh, police forces. Uh, other towns, we see uh, we see some real progress. Uh, Maja, which everybody talks likes to talk about. Uh, in June, there were uh, no policemen on the streets at all. Now we have over 300. How secure is Marja? Well, Marja is a work in progress. Uh, it's come a long way. So I, I would remind you that six months ago, uh, you couldn't fly over it, nor could you drive through it as a member of the coalition. It was uh, strong, strongly held by the Taliban. Today, uh, we hold it. It's making progress across the board. Uh, there, is, there is still uh, too much violence, I think, but uh, we are going to work hard at getting that, getting that reduced. The Marsha is very important to the Taliban. It is uh, psychologically, I think, very important to them because it's, it's part of the heartland of the Pashtun uh, 
tribe in which he, which the Taliban draws most of its strength from. But more importantly, it's the very heart of the uh, uh, the money system that kept the insurgency alive, which is the drug industry. Marja was the center for growing poppy, processing poppy, and then moving that heroin out of the country to be sold uh, on the streets of Europe, the streets of America, in order to raise money to keep the insurgency alive. So he's fighting hard for that, but he's losing. He's, he's a resilient individual, and he keeps coming back. But every day you see, you see uh, security getting better. Every day you see the incidents dropping off. And every day you see smaller and smaller groups of insurgents uh, who try to get back into the city. And to talk of British involvement, the British area of operations in Helmand has shrunk, especially with the imminent handover of Sangin. Is that something that's going to continue, or might things simply stay as they are at the moment? Well, Chris, that's a tactical decision that I make uh, on the battlefield as to what forces I apply where. Uh, I, I would point out that if you, uh, if you really study the situation, you realise very quickly that uh, where the majority of the UK forces are, is the central uh, Helmand River Valley. Those are the six key districts that uh, we believe control the entire uh, problem and control the entire uh, province. That's the key ground we have to hold. And so I, I've decided to uh, to reinforce that effort and, uh, and to shuffle some forces around in the battlefield and tactical decision I made. And I think that uh, in the end it, uh, it will pay, uh, pay large dividends. So what kind of state do you think uh, the British are leaving Sangin in for you? In good shape. They're leaving it in good shape. They have, they have carved out a very uh, a, a solid security bubble that we are moving our forces into. Uh, we are They are leaving good relations with local people up there. They're leaving solid uh, professional relationships with the Afghan units on the battlefield up there. Uh, they are leaving a government that is beginning to emerge and beginning to provide some services to the people. So some real progress has been made. Uh, we are going to... Uh, build on those successes. We're going to continue to push the security bubble out. We're going to continue to work with the local forces that are there and continue to make the insurgent uh, pay a heavy price for wanting to stay. If you look at it, it's been a consistent series of defeats on the battlefield by the U.K. forces that were stationed there. I think they're moving absolutely in the right direction. Again, uh, as in many places I said earlier, a huge sacrifice was paid. There's much blood up in that, on that ground. Everything was everything was tough fought for and, and and, and it was tough to win it, but, they, but, but the U.K. forces won it. So uh, I can't, uh, I don't want to downplay at all the sacrifice and the contribution they've made and, and the foundation they've left. I have extraordinary admiration for the gallantry of those groups up there, for their perseverance, uh, for the leadership, and for their performance on the battlefield against a very, very tough enemy. U.S. Marine Corps Major General Richard Mills. Well, joining me in the studio is British Forces News Defence Analyst Christopher Lee and Francis Chuser, Editor of Defence Analysis. Welcome to both of you. Um, Christopher, first of all, Major General Mills wants to make the insurgent pay a heavy price for wanting to stay, as he puts it. Tough words. What do you make of that assessment? A lot of the time, of course, they don't stay. I mean, if you look what's going on in the, the other, we don't call it a surge, but the other operation in Kandahar, for example... Kandahar's got 10 districts. They've moved into uh, Malayat uh, and the next door, number 6 district. So what happens? Taliban move out. Um, in fact, most people have moved out, and they picked up 21 Taliban, who they say are Taliban, but in fact a lot of them are not Taliban. And so that is the difficulty, mm. is that you make an assessment and you say, uh, we're doing quite well. You're doing quite well until you decide not to stare them in the eyes any longer. And then they come back later. They can do. They don't always, but they can do. And there's no need for them. Because there's the Taliban, for example, in those two districts I've talked about out of the ten, 
They've simply moved into the other part of Kandahar City. It's not even in the region or the province. It's actually moved into the other part of the city, and everybody knows that. Mm, Mercurial presence. Um, While the British are operating in some key areas in Helmand, we're still very much minority partners, aren't we? We're minority partners, and um, simply in terms of numbers, that was the whole idea of bringing in more uh, United States forces, had to do that. Um, You couldn't carry on doing what, uh, what they were doing. But, you see, if you listen to the general, I mean, he says, OK, um, it's up to him to start moving people about to make decisions, and everybody's done a very good job. Start looking at the idea, for example, he talks about hearts and minds, but he doesn't call it that. Uh, the United States Marine Corps has a totally different record of how they win hearts and minds and how many hearts and minds they win, and mm-hmm. that is I, I that's tricky to, talk, to get them with. I want to talk to Francis about that. What's your experience of the U.S. Marine Corps compared to the, the style used by British troops? Well, certainly historically, and I think we've got to bear in mind a lot has changed since 2001. Historically, you would have said all U.S. forces were much more in favour of use of force first and then sort stuff out later. Um, I think perhaps the slightly worrying one is the degree to which U.S. forces generally have probably become far more um, experienced and wise in counterinsurgency. And um, the degree to which they have been collectively writing the doctrine on counterinsurgency, where once it would have been regarded as absolutely this is what the British Army does best. Um, I think there are fewer grounds where the UK can look at the American forces and say they're not very good. US forces have come on streets and bounds, though there are issues on rules of engagement some of which stem from the fact that, of course, the UK has signed um, the International War Crimes uh, Convention and the United States hasn't, where you will see, faced with Situation X, some very different responses. All right, well, let's stay with Afghanistan, because this weekend it will be exactly nine years since the September the 11th attacks, and there has been widespread condemnation of a Florida church's plan to mark the anniversary by burning the Koran. There are fears the move could cost American lives in Afghanistan. Lorna Ward is in Camp Bastion. Lorna, what has the chain of command had to say about all of this? Well, the threat to burn the Koran has caused outrage, obviously, in, in Muslim countries around the world. In Kabul, there have been protests with large crowds burning effigies of Terry Jones, the pastor who's organising the burning. Um, the ISAF commander, General David Petraeus, says the stunt is going to put American lives at risk. We're concerned that the images from the burning of a Koran would be used in the same way that uh, extremists used images from Abu Ghraib, uh, that they would in a sense be indelible and they would be uh, used by those who wish us ill. Now, leading politicians in Washington, uh, in fact, most recently President Obama himself, uh, and all over the world have joined in the condemnation. Uh, Terry Jones, though, says he won't back down, and he's insisted that his followers will burn the 200 copies of the Koran on Saturday. Uh, and Lorna, operations clearly continue relentlessly in Helmand province, and this week they've claimed two British lives. Well, Lance Corporal Robert Poole of the Royal Scots Borderers, 1st Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland, uh, died on Sunday. He was 26 years old and serving with the Brigade Reconnaissance Force near Nadali when he was killed in action. His fiancée, Lindsay Houston, said, Joe was a loving fiancée and wonderful dad of two boys aged seven and two. He was much loved and he will be missed by all his family and friends. His commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Herbert, said, despite the intensity of the fight, he remained remained undaunted throughout. I'm exceptionally proud to have been his commanding officer over the past two years. 
Uh, also on Sunday, Captain Andy Griffith of the 2nd Battalion, the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment, died of his wounds back in the UK at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. He was 25 years old. He'd been caught up in an IED blast near Nari Siraj uh, a fortnight earlier. His family said, We're immensely proud of him and all that he had achieved in his all-too-short life. He died doing a job he loved and excelled at. Uh, his CO, Lieutenant Colonel Robbie Boyd, said he became a lion of a man, courageous, proud of his regiment, fearsome in battle and a friend to his peers. And Lorna, we were hearing a few moments ago from General Mills about the quality of trained Afghan national security forces. Uh, you've been out on the ground looking at just that, haven't you? Yes, I've been out with the 1st Battalion, the Royal Gurkha Rifles in Nari Siraj South. They're working alongside both the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. Now, in most areas, the Afghan Army is considered to be further forward in the training and mentoring process and closer to being able to operate independently of their coalition counterparts. But in Nari Siraj, the police mentoring work really is one of the success stories. Um, they've just opened a new police station there and they've got a number of checkpoints which protect the local communities. They stop the Taliban from coming back into the villages. The visible presence of Afghan governance and policing has made a very noticeable difference. They've managed to get over 300 development projects from building wells to a school uh, off the ground in just over a year. And the main reason for this success seems to be that the Afghan police are recruited locally, unlike the Afghan army, so they have a vested interest in the security of the area and, of course, then they're more easily trusted by the community. Lorna Ward, thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, we ask what General Richards might be like as Chief of the Defence Staff and hear how he made his name. David Richards had a specific direction by the Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary for the UK's deployment to Sierra Leone not to fail. And we look back at the service of remembrance at St Paul's Cathedral for the Battle of Britain. BFBS Sit It's well known that the Strategic Defence and Security Review will report in October. There is an expectation it'll mean savings across defence, particularly in the equipment programme. And earlier today, BAE Systems announced plans to shed almost a 1,000 jobs, mainly in its military division. Well, yesterday, its chief executive, Ian King, appeared before the Commons Defence Select Committee. Pressed by one member, John Woodcock, he said the whole industry is assuming there'll be significant cuts. The carrier programme is, is committed against two um, vessels and, and that's what the, the current contractual commitment is and that's what we're working against. We have been asked to look at a number of options. Recently asked over the last uh, couple of weeks, in fact probably the last week or so, to look at a number of options. But contractually the programme is for two vessels and that's what we're working on. And uh, can you say what those options are? Um, I think they all they they range from having uh, one carrier to uh, no carriers, but with an equivalent other program to, to look at the skills and and it, it's, it's quite a range of options so that decisions can be made. Presumably, from your <coughs> your starting point, you'll be working through this. But I'm intrigued as to what a kind of equivalent program would be to maintain that skills. Well, that's that's the debate that the teams are going through. Ian King of BAE Systems, with what appeared to be a revelation about the impact of the cuts. Well, Francis Tews is still in the studio. Um, Francis, how surprising is this disclosure about the carrier programme? 
Um, probably not at all. Uh, we've heard from even last year with the previous government that nothing would be ruled out, with the exception possibly of the deterrent programme. Everything would be examined. Um, there has been uh, enough talk and service rivalry, uh, looking at what could be cut and so forth, that the carriers would be studied. But what you heard very much from Ian King there, uh, was a reminder, which he did actually uh, expand, is there is a thing called the Terms of Business Agreement between BA Systems and the government, which guarantees a certain workload in the shipyards for the next, basically, 15 years. Mm. And what he's pointing out is, great, if you don't build the carriers, you will anyway have to pay X hundred million pounds a year. It's about a, I think it's about £180 million pounds a year guaranteed, even if nothing happens in the shipyards. So it's one of these ones that, uh, great, by all means, cancel the carriers. There will be penalty clauses. And actually, the last time I looked, including the design costs and the design contracts, somewhere in excess of £2.7 has already been spent on the carriers. So in terms of getting savings out, it's starting to look... Uh, it, you would get some money, but the idea that cancelling carrier would solve all of your pr- budget problems is pretty much pie in the sky. Christopher Lee. It's not going to... His front's right. It's not going to solve the problem. But it's more than that. You cancel a carrier, for example. You also, what are you going to do? Uh, if you buy a carrier, you've got to have frigates as escorts, frigate destroyer escorts. You want probably two astute submarines to, uh, to, to, to guard it. You've got all the aircraft that are going to go on to it. You've also got things that we don't think about. I mean, for example, the biggest uh, non-tidal basin dock in the United Kingdom is at mm. Rosyth, where the carrier is supposed to be put together. They're already spending millions actually changing the shape of the dock. They've got the biggest crane in Europe. They're building Goliath. I mean, everybody ought to go and see it. It's the... It's the, it's, it's the Something it's, it's to the, behold. Well, it's the angel of the very north, yes. etc. But what's the, what's the cost? It is enormous. I went to McTaggart's, who are going to build the lifts to bring up the aircraft on, onto the carrier decks. They, I said, well, what happens if this, or, if this goes for a, a ball of chalk? And they said, well, our cancellation fee is £47 million. Mm. And that's a tiny company. And let's move on to some of the outlandish rumours that have been coming out ahead of the findings of the Strategic Defence and Security Review. Uh, Francis, uh, all kinds of things, uh, from the abolishment of the Gurkhas, the merge of the Paris and the Royal Marines, the abolition of the Air Force even, or, or even a Special Forces Regiment. Where are these coming from and how much store should be set by them? I think what we're seeing with a lot of these r- reports, rumours, is uh, game-playing by the services. The first thing they always do when someone says, right, we need to make cuts, is they come up with the unpalatable cuts. So, for example, every single time you have another set of cuts, Royal Air Force puts up the red arrows. Says, fine, disband <laughs> the red arrows. And funnily enough, when it goes through Which no it, one thinks would ever happen. Correct. Uh, apparently this year they also put up the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, mm-hmm. 70th anniversary notwithstanding, knowing, safe in the knowledge, it would not uh, occur. And safe in the knowledge, in fact, that the dates you couldn't do it in Exactly. Time. So we have seen a hell of a lot of game playing by the services. And at the same time, no one willing to stand up and say, do you know what, Secretary of State? I've had a look at what we do and so forth. And this forth. is what we could and really here do. Are, here are three serious scenarios where you could change the shape, size, whatever, of any of the three services. Why? Because any service saying, I found savings in my uh, area, the other two services will go, great, I don't need to find you see, any. What see, we, what we forget mm. is that it, what happens is that all the guys in suits in the, in the, in the Ministry of Defence are blamed for, for bad budgeting, etc., but the biggest problem has been the military themselves, overbuying. And if you want to look at the problems, the equipment plan, £20 billion overspent. I am sure we will be returning to this subject uh, in not so many weeks, uh, but for both of you for the moment, thank you. Um, hopefully the rumours will be put to rest when the SDSR reports in October. This is SITREP on BFBS. 
Whatever the outcome of the defence review, it'll fall to General Sir David Richards to handle what could be strained relations between politicians and the military. He'll take over as Chief of the Defence Staff next month, just as the Treasury and MOD set out exactly where the axe will fall. His appointment was pushed through by the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, and is widely seen as evidence of the new government's commitment to Afghanistan. Well, Sir David spent time as Commander of NATO forces in the country, but that's only part of a long military career, as James Hurst reports. It's nearly 40 years since David Richards was commissioned into the Royal Artillery before studying international relations at university. In his early years as a soldier, he served in Germany, the Far East and did three tours of Northern Ireland. But it was 12 years ago, as a brigadier, that he began publicly to make his mark after he was posted to permanent joint headquarters as Chief Joint Force Operations. As the UK's one-star commander for short-notice expeditionary operations, he first led the British contingent sent to East Timor in 1999 for UN peacekeeping. A year later, he commanded a UK task force sent to Sierra Leone, where a bloody civil war was raging. He was sent simply to evacuate British citizens caught up in fighting, but he's credited with bringing peace while there. I suppose if ever there was a model JRRF deployment... um, what you've been witnessing and I've had the privilege of commanding with enormous assistance from everyone right up through the chain of command. The whole system has matured and come of age and so I I really do think it's been a marvellous operation from a straightforward military perspective alone. Marvellous it may have been but he had stepped far outside his original remit deciding to intervene in the conflict promising Sierra Leone's president military support without first getting approval from the British government. It's been portrayed by some as a huge risk, but Mark Phillips from Rusi believes that then-Brigadier Richards was simply doing his job. David Richards had a very good understanding of the overall foreign policy intent of the government, which, following uh, the failure of the international community in Rwanda, uh, was quite significant in in terms of uh, humanitarianism. And he was also actually given a specific direction by the Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary for the UK's deployment to Sierra Leone not to fail. The General now says if it had gone wrong, they would have cut him off at the knees. But it didn't. It earned him the nickname Riches of Africa and a promotion to Major General a year later. By 2005, he was commander of the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps and in this role he deployed in 2006 to take command of NATO forces in Afghanistan and with it control of ISAF at a ceremony in Kabul. It is a huge privilege to be here as commander of ISAF 9 to lead NATO's support to the government of Afghanistan for the next nine months. At the helm of ISAF, he was the first British general to command significant American forces in action since World War II, and he was in command as British forces pushed south into Helmand for the first time. Times journalist Tom Coughlin, who was working in Kabul at the same time, says General Richards also brought a new approach with him. Richards introduced something he called the Policy Action Group, an attempt to draw the Afghan government into the process to combine the military with the political. That was really effective, I think, and unfortunately Richards' successor abandoned the scheme. Subsequently, 2009-2010, exactly the same sort of politically-led approach is now back in favour. General Richards says Afghanistan is now in his bloodstream. His time there also changed his moniker to Richards of Afghanistan. In the three and a half years since he left Kabul, he's been promoted three times to Commander-in-Chief UK Land Forces, then Chief of the General Staff and now Chief of Defence Staff. 
He describes himself as a seat-of-pants soldier, described by some others as a risk-taker. He certainly stood up to politicians before. He may want to again. He'll take up the top job just as the finishing touches are put to the Strategic Defence and Security Review, reshaping Britain's forces with a significantly smaller budget. James Hurst reporting. Well, Robert Fox is defence correspondent of the Evening Standard and he joins me now. Uh, Robert Fox, Sir David arrives right in the middle of the defence review. He's got form, as we heard there. So how might he stand up to the politicians, do you think? Well, he knows a great deal about it. He goes as uh, head of the Army Chief of the General Staff, I think, on Wednesday on the 15th. Uh, He is sitting in already next to Sir Jock Stirrup, the present CDS, and he knows where all the bones are and the bodies are buried, and he knows what blueprint he's got to work from. And he's got a very clear view about what he's going to do. He's well capable of handling the politicians, and he knows how delicate the job is politically, and uh, he knows that that's going to be a main effort over the next few months anyway. Uh, Of course, there is a risk that defence cost-cutting could overshadow his time in charge. Well, he knows that, but uh, the way he puts it, um, uh, and he's quite open about this, is that he has got to help the process out of all this to give Britain a strategic vision suitable to its capabilities, to its forces, uh, its assets, in other words, and its ambitions as to where it sits in the world. Uh, He's very clear-eyed about this. He's not sentimental. He knows what cuts are coming. He knows what radical changes have got to take place in in the army, for instance. But I do agree. I think how this is going to work in the political arena is going to be terribly interesting. Uh, He wants to uh, prepare the armed forces, prepare the government's defence and security apparatus um, uh, for the next generation. But things are going to be cut, by all accounts, so radically that there may not be the capability to deal with what is known as the strategic surprise or the Friday surprise, one of which was Sierra Leone. And he was terribly good at that, as as we have heard. And I think that this is going to be the real test. But if anybody in the present hierarchy is up to it, it's him. Uh, Francis Chuser, how do you think he's going to handle... Is he going to be even-handed, do you think, given his background when it comes to talking and defending the various services well, against the Defence Review? Maybe a statement of the office. Being CDS is very different from being CGS. You were there as the Prime Minister's uh, principal political defence advisor. You can't uh, just uh, promote your own service, even if that has been pretty much a traditional uh, aspect of CDS's over the last 20 years. Um, he has shown some weakness over especially maritime affairs not necessarily seeing seeing the importance so he potentially is going to have to bend over backwards in the early days to show that he will not create the errors of previous single service CDSs who have um, and it's again accusation of jock stirrup that he has only favored the RAF above the other two so mm. it is going to be a very serious balancing match uh, briefly robert fox um, how important do you think personality is in the role of the chief of the defense staff in the case of David Richards, it's very, very important because his bounciness irritates somebody. But there is a unique aspect, I find, to his personality, is that he writes and speaks what he does himself. He doesn't have speech writers. He writes his own material. I've seen him at international conferences. That's tremendously engaging. Taking Francis's point, I think there's one thing that's absolutely sure, whether he will do it in name or do it in practice. David Richards will make sure that he's the chairman of a joint chiefs committee, and he knows that they've all three got to talk together, the chiefs, with one voice in order to, to, to talk truth to power, which is going to be very, could be very, very agonizing at certain points. I know this because 
because he has actually stated this. Uh, Chris Lee, um, he said that Afghanistan was in his bloodstream. How much do you think that will shape what happens there and in Whitehall? Well, he's already made it clear that he feels that if you're at war, and this is the difference between the strategic defence review that's going on at the moment, and that it's being done while we are at war. And so he's already made it clear that big projects, when he means by big projects, uh, carriers, for example, uh, don't rate perhaps with the forces you need at the moment. He has one great advantage, though, and that he recognises, and I heard him the other night talking about this, he recognises the most important politician in Whitehall, it's not the Defence Secretary, but the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and that's the guy that he's, he's studying very carefully, and that's the guy that's actually quite confident in David Richards, and that, that makes it far more interesting. He makes him a Whitehall warrior, which is what is absolutely sort of necessary at the moment. All right, Christopher Francis, and on the line, Robert Fox, thanks very much for your time. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Well, a service of remembrance, march past of veterans and fly past have been held at St Paul's Cathedral in London this week to mark the 70th anniversary of the start of the Blitz. Uh, the timing of this anniversary falls very well for the RAF at Francis when they're fighting for their survival, doesn't it? It certainly helps, um, though if you start looking a little bit deeper at options SDSR might look at, there are aspects of the RAF which are still very much set up for World War Three and not for modern operations. Which ones would you? If you look at the uh, fourth generation, how many aircraft can be mobilised for various tasks and missions? Um, we have about 130-plus Tornado GR4s. The, and this is according to Air Command. The maximum sustainable, deployable number of Tornadoes is six out of 130-plus. Wow. Uh, we are able to do 10, possibly 11 Chinooks out of 40, 42. Uh, things like that just don't look particularly good. And uh, there, this is why the RAF is starting to feel a very worrying uh, cold draft around its, uh, its ankles. OK, on that subject, we must leave it for today. My thanks to both of you, Christopher Lee and Francis Chooser, for your time. Um, anything you've missed, you can catch up with online at bfbs.com slash sitrep. We'll be back with another edition of Sitrep at the same time next week where we'll be looking ahead to the Afghan elections and asking what has been to to, to done to prevent or repeat of the fraud that marred last year's presidential poll. Until then from me, Kate Sherbo thank you for listening and goodbye.